Today we come to what is known as the Olivet Discourse, something I have been looking forward to for some time as we've been working our way through Luke's Gospel. And it's called the Olivet Discourse because this is, these are Jesus' prophetic words given on the Mount of Olives concerning the things that were to come. And we'll be making our way through the Olivet Discourse over the next few weeks. But let me read the entire text uh, from verse 5 down to the end of the chapter in verse 38. This is what God's word says, beginning in Luke chapter 21, verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth the stress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves lest your hearts 
be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged in the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask now that your spirit would illuminate our minds, that we might understand and believe and be shaped by the words you have spoken to us through your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. As the years go by, now that we are in February of 2024, uh, it really does seem that the world is becoming more wicked and lost. And I don't think I have to belabor the point, but just all you need to do is take a look at the current state of affairs of the moral and spiritual bankruptcy of our culture and just the reign of godlessness. And I think it all speaks for itself. And I'm sure that many of you have heard or perhaps even said for yourself, man, it really seems like we're approaching the last days. Now, we have to be careful to always examine our words and the definition of the words that we use, whether it's been defined and informed by the Bible or if it's from popular culture and even popular Christian culture. Because biblically speaking, believe it or not, we are for sure in the last days. In fact, we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. And it will continue to head deeper into the last days as human history approaches the end. And the reason is because the present age in which we live are the days of human history after God has already visited this world through the advent of Christ 2,000 years ago. And at the same time, we await the day of final and consummate visitation when Christ will return to the world to judge the living and the dead. And so the, the present day, this current period of time in between the two advents, these are the last days, both already here and also not yet here consummately. And this is what we must bear in mind as we come to these words from our Lord. You see, the, the Olivet Discourse, which is recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, also called the Synoptic Gospels, because they're looking at the same thing and giving a similar sequence of events, unlike John, who has a whole different order of things. But the Olivet Discourse is a notoriously difficult portion of Scripture to interpret, because you'll notice, as we've just read, Jesus speaks of his return and what seems to be the final day of judgment, how things will go leading up to that day. But at the same time, Jesus seems to also talk a lot about the specifics of Jerusalem's impending destruction, which we know happened in the year 70 AD in the first century. And so there seems to be two events and two time frames in view. And the question is, which one is Jesus talking about? And it's this tension that has led to different interpretive views of the Olivet Discourse. 
But the problem is that some focus way too much on just what happened in the first century, Jerusalem's destruction, and they say, oh, all of this, this whole thing, everything Jesus talked about in these verses, it's all been fulfilled already and completed. But of course, that's kind of a precarious position to hold because of the clearly apocalyptic language of cosmic upheaval and and the consummate return of Christ. The, the divine judgment of which Jesus speaks can't just be a local event pertaining to first century Israel. I mean, look in verse 25. Clearly, we're talking about the global distress of nations. Verse 35, these things will, uh, will be coming upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. And so it's not just about 70 AD. But on the other hand, Others focus way too much on only the end times. And they read this entire discourse with this rabid end times fanaticism and fascination, not recognizing the clear language that pertains to a context of a Jewish nation in the first century. For example, believers will be persecuted, but specifically how? Verse 12, they'll be delivered up to synagogues, the Jewish synagogues. Verse 20, Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies, which is exactly what happened, as we know in history, by the Roman army under Titus Vespasianus. And so clearly, it's not just about the end times, quote-unquote. You see this tension. This is the struggle. But the tension is the point. Because the fact is, Jesus is talking about both events, often in a way where they are overlapped with one another in how he speaks because both are interrelated and inseparable. Because they both have to do with the day of judgment surrounding his visitation upon the world. And ultimately, the point of all of this is to help us understand the reality of the last days in which we presently live. You see, the Olivet Discourse is not just for the interest of the historians, nor is it for the fascination of the end times forecasters, which is a nice way to put it. But the Olivet Discourse is for the church. These are Jesus' very pastoral words to his church for our encouragement, for our comfort, for our strengthening. That through these words, he's calling his church to be courageous and to hold fast to him as shining lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation that is this perishing world. Because his church, those who belong to Jesus Christ by faith, they are his people and his true temple on earth that will never be destroyed and that will alone stand unto the end. That's the point. Notice how the Olivet Discourse begins. The disciples ask Jesus a question to which he gives this lengthy response. But notice what prompts the whole thing in the first place. Verse 5, it was while some were speaking of the temple in Jerusalem, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. The temple in Jesus' day, you have to understand, was one of the great wonders of the world. Now, it was under Solomon, but this is a whole different thing. Because if you remember, King Solomon was the one who built the original temple, in the 10th century BC, this is in 1 Kings. But of course we understand that after centuries of continued disobedience and rebellion against God and unrepentance, God eventually brought judgment upon them by the hand of the Babylonians in the 6th century BC. This is at the end of 2 Kings. And 
the judgment was delivered by the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, who besieged Jerusalem with his army and tore down the temple. And so Solomon's beautiful temple was, was no more. But by God's grace and mercy, the Jews were sent off into exile in Babylon. But after 70 years in exile, God brought them back. The Jews returned and rebuilt the temple led by Zerubbabel and Ezra. This is what you see in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And that rebuilt temple was what stood for more than 400 years leading up to the first century. But by the time we get to the first century AD, Herod the Great, he determined to beautify the temple in Jerusalem and undertake this massive architectural project to remodel it and to expand it. I mean, it was, it was like extreme home makeover. Uh, he had a thing for huge building projects for his legacy, but also he probably did, did this to try to gain some favor with the Jews. And so over several decades, that temple complex, which had been rebuilt by the returned uh, exiles, was enlarged and embellished in the most extravagant way. One might say that it even on the outside exceeded the scale of Solomon's temple in beauty, in splendor, and in majesty. And certainly it was far more impressive than the temple that was uh, rebuilt in Ezra and Nehemiah. And it was a jaw-dropping spectacle. I mean, it was the tourist location on earth. And that's why the disciples spoke of the temple, admiring how it was adorned with the finest of stones and offerings. And you see in Mark's account, it says one of the disciples said to him, Lord, look, teacher, what, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And people were, were, were amazed by the exterior beauty of the temple in Jerusalem that was renovated by Herod. And it's to this that Jesus responds by saying in verse 6, all this that you see, the days are coming when not a single stone is going to be left standing. It's all going to be toppled over. And obviously Jesus was prophesying about 70 AD. that In about 40 years time, the temple would be destroyed once for all by the Romans, utterly overthrown and decimated. And this context that gives rise to the Olivet Discourse is critical to understand. Because the destruction of the temple in the first century was God's judgment upon the unbelieving nation of Israel who had the first privilege of receiving the Messiah and yet they rejected him and they remained spiritually dead. I mean, think about it. The outside of the temple was beautiful. But that was a problem, wasn't it? It was all adorned on the outside. But inside was filthy in God's eyes. Nothing but dead religion. And Jesus even had to turn over tables and drive out all the profiteers and tradesmen that had turned the temple into nothing but a business center instead of a true house of worship. You see, the temple in Jerusalem was the emblem of the spiritual state of the Jews in Jesus' time. That it was only about outward appearances, and yet they were spiritually dead inside. It was all just religious hypocrisy. And so God would destroy it in judgment of their unbelief and rejection of the true knowledge of God through, through faith in Christ. And by destroying the temple, God was sending a message 
that all of these outward signs and pictures and means of accessing God through temple, through way of sacrifice, etc., these are no value. Because Jesus Christ has come. And no one can come to the Father except through Him. In fact, turn to Matthew chapter 24. I want, I want to show you something interesting. Uh, Matthew 24 is the exact uh, parallel passage of the Olivet Discourse. And verse 1 it be, uh, begins in the same way Luke chapter 21 begins. But in Matthew's account, in Matthew 24, it begins with this seemingly extraneous detail. Uh, just a setting of the narrative. Uh, verse 1 begins in Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the, the buildings of the temple. Just like in Luke. And again, we might think, okay, well, this is just a nice piece of information that the conversation happened while Jesus was on his way out. What's the big deal? Well, the details in Scripture are not just extraneous for the sake of merely being detail-oriented, but there is a theological message that is being communicated via pattern recognition. Remember how God also promised the destruction of the temple centuries before the destruction that came by the hand of the Babylonians, uh, the original temple built by Solomon, because the people had stubbornly refused to listen to God and kept worshiping other gods. And if you read through the Old Testament, you read through the prophets, first and second kings, you notice that they had this spiritual pride in them. They said, well, God's glory dwells in this temple. We're God's special nation. He'll never judge us. We're untouchable. But then, do you remember what the prophet Ezekiel saw in a vision? In Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 18, and this was about, this is less than 10 years before the temple was destroyed in 586 BC. It was coming very, very soon. And what did Ezekiel see? As I saw that the glory of God left the house, left the temple. God deserted that temple. God walked out because that had become nothing more than a building. God was saying, I'm leaving this house because I'm about to tear down this house. And here in Matthew 24, verse 1, we see Jesus, the glory of God incarnate. He left the temple and was going away. The glory of God has departed. Because God was about to destroy this temple for good. Why? As judgment upon their unbelief. But also because he would build a new temple. Not built by hands. Not with bricks and stones. But with living stones. His true people who belong to Christ by faith. This was what God was signaling, that the old temple, the old order has gone because the true temple had come as the word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory and the glory of God would now no longer dwell in a physical building in a localized geographical territory of Mount Zion in Jerusalem. But as as the, as the body of Christ is now the church, God's glory dwells in the hearts of believers who are united to Christ. They are the heavenly Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, as Hebrews 12, says. 
That's why God destroyed the temple in Jerusalem in the first century. Because it's obsolete. Listen, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this one day, which is strange because this is just basic Christian theology in my opinion. But there is nothing special about Jerusalem today. I'm sorry, there just isn't. And if anyone decides and succeeds in reclaiming the Temple Mount today from the Muslims, because it's under Muslim control for the most part, and if anyone reclaims it and decides to build some big, beautiful temple, even to the exact Old Testament specifications, it will mean absolutely nothing. It will be as spiritually meaningful as building a lemonade stand. Because it's nothing but a building. Because the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. But in His mysterious and amazing grace, Christ has come down to dwell in people, in sinners whom He has redeemed, who who have come to Him by repentance and faith. In you and me, Christian, the Spirit of God, the glory of the Most High, indwelling us, whereby we are God's holy temple. Look, this has always been God's grand plan of redemption. This was the end game all along which is what we see being talked about in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, 22. This has always been the end game in God's plan, which means that ever since the advent of Christ and the temple's destruction in 70 AD, these last 2,000 years are the last days because we are and we have been living in the final movement of God's symphony of redemption. And that's why the the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in the first century and the final judgment of all mankind on the last day, it's so inextricably connected because it's all within and part of the same movement. Though, of course, the consummate end times will be the climactic finale, but it's all the same movement in the symphony. And that's why Jesus responds in this very manifold way. I mean, look at the question that the disciples ask in Luke 21. When they hear Jesus say that this temple will be utterly thrown down, they ask him in verse 7, Teacher, when will these things be? And, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now, in, in Matthew's record, we have a bit of a more precise understanding of what they were, the intent of what they were asking. The disciples ask, Tell us, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You see how they conflated the two? When will, be the, when will the temple be destroyed? And also, the assumption being, when will you return and, the, and, the, and have it be the end of the age? And the reason they asked it in this way was because being Jewish themselves, their minds were so, so temple-centric and Jerusalem-centric and Israel-centric, that they assume that the destruction of the temple would mean the destruction of the world as they know it. They couldn't imagine a world without the temple building in Jerusalem. 
And Jesus' response, therefore, is not so direct and straightforward of an answer because he has to correct their assumption that it won't be at the same time. And that's why he begins like this in verse 8. See that you're not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Ah, it's, it's, it's all here. The end is here, but don't go after them. And when you hear of wars and all the kind of stuff, don't be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Though you will see the temple destroyed, that will not be the consummate end. Because that will be only the beginning of the end. It is just the inauguration of the last days. The end won't be immediate. The end won't be all at once. And so in all the words that follow, Jesus will explain how the temple will be destroyed, Jerusalem will be besieged and left desolate as an act of divine judgment. And yet we must understand that all of that is a microcosm of the final judgment to come when the Son of Man returns on the last day. So understand this clearly. What was unleashed upon the nation of Israel in the first century is what will be unleashed upon all the nations of the earth in the final century. That's why these two events are inseparable. To us, they are distinct because they're separated by time. But to God, who is eternal and outside of time, they are interconnected. It's the same meal. But one is the appetizer. Not a pleasant meal, exactly. One is the appetizer, and the rest of the courses are coming. But make no mistake, the kitchen is at work and the oven is cooking and preparing the remaining courses. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, Malachi 4.1. See, the, the, the period of time in between these two events is truly the last days because the meal has begun, so to speak. Church, this is the final movement of history that we are living in. This is why the Bible says he is coming soon. He is near. The end is at hand because we're in the final leg of the divine itinerary, no matter how long that leg takes. Even if, if it's been 2,000 years and counting, this is still the final leg. A long leg, but the final leg. It's the last days. And Jesus has very practical instructions for us in light of it. And so he begins in verse 8 by saying, don't be deceived, don't be led astray. Whether people say, I am he, or the end is here, the time is at hand, don't go after them. Why? Because again, the end is not yet to come. And you will know when the end has come, when you see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with heavenly glory, verse 27. You can't miss it, so don't fall for all this other stuff. Oh, the world is ending. Oh, the ice caps are melting. Oh, my goodness. Don't fall for that. You know, there are many in the first century who claim to be Messiah, capitalizing on the, on the fever pitch of this, this frenzy of tension with, within the Roman Empire leading up to 70 AD. And likewise, so will there arise a lot of people 
who claim to be prophet, messiah, or someone who possessed special revelation as it gets closer to Jesus' return. God's judgment on Israel in the first century and the various circumstances and experiences surrounding it, it will be repeated and intensified in the final century at the end of the age. Now, why would this, why, why does this happen? I mean, why do people follow these kinds of phonies, to be honest? And in fact, we should ask, well, why does Jesus begin with this? Why is this on the forefront of his mind and this being his immediate concern? Because he knows that where there is turbulence, people get very afraid. And in a climate of fear, false leaders, false prophets, false saviors, false ideologies arise to the occasion and are able to capitalize on a fearful people because it's really easy to deceive and to lead astray people when they are gripped by fear. And so when Jesus says, don't be deceived, this is subsumed under the the ultimate exhortation of don't be afraid. This is his main thrust, you see. Hence verse 9, and when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Verse 10, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, various places, famines and pestilences, terrors and great signs from heaven. I mean, do you understand what Jesus is saying? He is not saying, hey, all of these things of wars and tumults and all the kind of chaos that happens. He is not saying these are the signs of the end. Wars, global tension, earthquakes, disease, astronomical phenomena, all that stuff. Jesus is saying the opposite. He is saying the exact opposite, that all of these things are not signs of the end. Rather, they are normal. It is necessary that these things first take place. He says in Matthew 24, 8, that all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. This present age is likened to a long labor that has already begun and is underway and will increasingly intensify until the final glorious arrival. Just as when a mother goes into labor and delivers a child. But all these things, wars, pestilences, hurricanes, economic crashes, whatever, These are all only the beginning of the birth pains. And the mothers in this room know that the contractions that begin the birth pains, as painful as they are, they are nothing compared to the contractions minutes before the baby comes. And that's what it'll be like in the immediate days before Jesus comes again. There will be a great distress, a great tribulation, But until then, all of these pains and distress and turmoil, all the things we've seen the last 2,000 years, all the world wars, the bubonic plague, I mean, fill in the blank, whatever, what have you, these are only the initial contractions. These things are nothing out of the ordinary in God's timetable and plan. But how often we get it backwards, church. 
I think as believers, we seriously miss the words that Jesus gives to us here in the Olivet Discourse. Because our theology tends to be more informed by the newspaper than by the scriptures. We hear of some new global crisis, rumors of wars, devastating natural catastrophes, diseases, economy crashing, and our instinct is to panic and say, oh my, the, the, the world is ending. Oh my, this must be the last days. And we respond with such fear. But Jesus says, these are not signs of the end. It's nothing. This is normal. So don't be afraid. Don't panic. Do you hear Jesus' heart here? He's saying, my beloved, I tell you all these things so that you may not fear, or that you may know that it is the Father's sovereign plan. The world is afraid because it doesn't know what's going on. But I reveal to you the counsel of God that you may stand strong and stand firm. Christians should not be a terrified people in response to all kinds of news. But if we're very honest, even in recent history, hasn't the church been just that? A very terrified and paralyzed people gripped by fear in response to global happenings. And it's because, frankly, that's how worldly the church has become. The world has influenced the church far more than the church has influenced the world. And this grieves our Lord, beloved. Brothers and sisters, this must not be. The church must be the pillar of truth, standing tall and strong in a fearful generation, with our minds renewed by the eternal truths of God. The church must be marked by a supernatural poise and sober-mindedness, such that God forbid, but if World War III were to begin this year, or some zombie monkeypox or whatever combination is unleashed, and all the news outlets start broadcasting, they're breaking news, breaking news. Our attitude should be to respond. Our Lord has already informed us of this long ago. We've already been briefed, thank you. And then we should just go about our business as usual, worshiping Him, trusting Him, and telling others of the hope that is in Him. How, telling people how blessed are all who take refuge in Christ. To be forgiven of sin, to be eternally secure to Him, and to have the assurance of the things that are to come, and to know where we are headed because we belong to him. What an opportunity in a fearful generation to bring them to the one who says, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. My peace I give to you. You see, this is the proper understanding of our world, of current events, but whatever chaos ensues, 
that these things are not abnormal, but they are normal according to the words of our Lord Jesus. These are all just early labor pains, still very early on, got a long way to go in anticipation and preparation of his coming. Now, thus far, Jesus has been talking about the turmoil and chaos that happens indiscriminately in the world where any pain and distress that we experience as a result of those things is simply because of collateral damage. Uh, For instance, natural disasters just happen without rhyme or reason, from our perspective at least. And uh, world wars uh, can take place, but it's not really uh, sparked uh, with you and me in mind. It's not aimed at us personally. But starting in verse 12, Jesus now turns his attention to the pain and distress that will be aimed at his people, and that's persecution. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Now, if you look closely, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus is clearly referring to the days leading up to 70 AD because he mentions that you will be delivered up to the synagogues. This is persecution by the hand of the Jews within the land of Israel where where the disciples uh, preached and evangelized. And hence begins verse 12 by saying, uh, before all this, because he has in view the very immediate fate for his disciples there with him on the Mount of Olives. The persecution they'd all experienced as they testified of Jesus as the risen Christ beginning in Judea and Samaria. And what Jesus foretold, you can see it all in the, in the book of Acts. The apostles were beaten and bruised and imprisoned and killed, dragged out of the synagogues by the hostile Jews. Paul stood before kings, King Agrippa, he appealed to Caesar, so on and so forth. And yet we can also understand that the persecution that the early church experienced would be experienced throughout the church age. I mean, simply put, church history plainly testifies that even to this very day, brothers and sisters all over the world are being imprisoned, standing before kings and governors, being put to death for their faith in Jesus. I mean, this has been ubiquitous throughout the church age. And this persecution will intensify as history approaches the end of the age, and it will be the cross to bear for believers. You know, America is a rare thing to behold, and really a a, a precious and undeserved blessing from God. Or for these past few hundred years of this nation's existence, we've been enjoying the freedom of worship. Uh, It's a nation that's found on the principles of such freedom. And as such, the American church hasn't really experienced true persecution, at least not yet. But we must always keep the broad perspective in mind that America is just a nation like any other nation, which means that there is an expiration date to this nation. And when that happens... What will it be like? What new regime will we be under? What does it even have to be a foreign invasion? I mean, the whole country can easily turn hostile to Christ and his church by itself with no outside foreign help or influence because things sure seem headed that way. 
Things seem to be getting more wicked and ungodly. And as believers, we have to be sober-minded and remember the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3.12, that indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And we must be ready to bear witness to the truth. But just as with all the other stuff, we are not to be afraid. When persecution arises, well, first of all, wisely flee, just as the early church did, but do not live in dread of it. And if it comes, and when it comes to your doorstep and you cannot flee, then be ready to stand firm. And when your number is called to recant the name of Jesus, then embrace that opportunity to bless the name of Jesus into the ears of those who hear. All these things will happen, Jesus says. But then he says, I will be with you to the end of the age. Verse 14, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. You don't have to worry. You don't have to figure out how you're going to explain yourself, how you're going to withstand, how you're going to have the courage Verse 15, for I will give you a mouth and a wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. What a comfort to us. And Jesus says, I will not leave you to fend for yourself. I will come to your defense and aid. You know, I wonder what it must have been like for the apostles as they were being persecuted. Um, as Peter was sentenced to death by crucifixion, under Emperor Nero, as church history tells us, as James was being killed by Herod Agrippa I, as we see in Acts. I mean, do you think that the apostles were superhumans, super Christians, just unfazed and unmoved? We have a tendency to read the people in the Bible in that way. But I mean, take a look at the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings. Oh, how discouraged he got. Oh, how scared he got. And so the apostles, I, I, I'm sure they were anxious. They trembled. But I think they remembered Jesus' words. And his Holy Spirit empowered them and gave them the spiritual strength to persevere. This is a promise. And we would do well to treasure it and keep it close to the chest because we never know when we might need it. The days might come more suddenly than we expect where we are delivered up for the sake of Christ. Perhaps the government will one day no longer respect and protect the message of the Bible as something that should be preached, but instead it'll be deemed as intolerable hate speech, verboten. But here are Jesus's comforting words. I will be with you even unto death. Verse 16, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish and by your endurance you will gain your lives. Now this sounds like an oxymoron. They'll put you to death, 
but you're not a not a single hair will perish. Okay, but my whole self will perish. Uh, why, why why would Jesus say this? Well, it's because we understand in the big scheme of things, as verse twenty eight says, your full redemption is coming. Even if they spill your blood, even if they destroy you, your body. I will raise it up on the last day. Every hair that fell, I will remember and I will resurrect and I will glorify into the imperishable. Every wound will be mended. Every scar will be healed. And so do not fear. Do do not be terrified because a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. And one little word, shall fell him. Church, this is the spirit of the Olivet Discourse. This is the heartbeat of Jesus' words here. We live in a fallen and perishing world, but how blessed we are to have taken refuge in Christ. History is all racing to the end, the final chapter. But this discourse from the Mount of Olives gives us the prophetic unveiling of all the things that are to come that we might not be afraid, but rather to know that the end that terrifies the world is the end that will thrill our hearts and be that glorious finish line. And so let us endure and persevere that we might gain our lives because to live is Christ and to die is gain. And may we, by God's help, in this church, stand strong in a dark generation as the true temple of God in whom his glory dwells. And this temple, he will never leave nor forsake. Let's pray together. Our gracious and almighty God, thank you for your mercy upon sinners like us and for choosing such vile vessels to inhabit. But you have done this because you have sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have united us with him by faith. Thank you for delivering us from the things that are to come as you have hidden us in Christ. Oh Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you, would you bring about a spirit of repentance and faith in Christ that they might find refuge in Christ while there is still time. And we thank you that you have given to us the sign of your gospel, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, that as we take the bread and the cup, we take his body and blood given to us 
as a sign of assurance that we really belong to him. Oh Lord, strengthen our faith with it and help us to live out what we are. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.